All right. <clears throat> so, Sam, this is your second talk, but you said you've been listening to a lot of videos, and so you're coming to check to see if what you're knowing is is correct. And like right. I said, so far, so good. And so uh, continue on. Got it. So what, I, what I've been thinking about Anabharasati is sort of two sides to it. Um, the first is that it's a almost like tonic for whatever is going on right now. So if you find yourself in unwholesome thoughts and you have the awareness to notice it, that even if you're not in a formal meditation, you can take some deep breaths and you know think some positive, safe thoughts and really push those wholesome thoughts and really give yourself relief from suffering in the short term. And it would stand to reason that just doing that repeatedly for a long enough period of time would develop those two skill sets that we spoke about, present moment awareness and the, the natural development of wholesome thoughts, and that that would just get stronger naturally over time. And then that leads me to think that this whole idea of like attainments, of like stream entry, once returner, non returner, uh, arahant, are sort of almost like pointless because if you're doing the skip like if what you need are these two skills and what those things are are effectively like just like a, a almost like if your skill is weightlifting it's just like oh this is you could lift this much right now not that it can't go away or get stronger but the, just getting to one of those points doesn't really mean you should you just have to keep doing the same thing anyway does that make it's sense it's all about yes it's all about practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, the funny thing about it is, is that in uh, many of the, uh, the, let us say, endeavors that human beings get into, many of them, uh, let us say, when uh, I'm using the word practice, and in fact, I'm really looking at the word formal. Yes. When the kids go to baseball practice, do they go to a formal practice or do they just go to practice? When you go to the dojo to practice do, uh, judo, do you do a formal judo practice or do you do just a practice? We can go one step further. And <clears throat> and that is, do you know the word kata? It's from Japanese karate and it's a set form. And they have quite a few of them that, in fact, the um, the very spectacular movies of martial arts is nothing but um, a sequence of movements that called a kata. And then they will put five or six katas together for a 15 minute movie. Right. And so those katas are very much like Tai Chi. You know that, in fact, that Tai Chi has a mirror image of it. They teach the one first, and very few students ever get far enough into Tai Chi to learn the reverse. Okay. Uh, now, in the in the kata or in the karate, you learn one kata, and then your teacher will do the reverse of the kata so that he's engaging with you. Right? And they call mm -hmm. that practice. But right. nobody ever calls kata practice a formal practice. Okay, a piano student. No one never calls anything right. formal practice, right? 
Right. There's no such thing as a formal practice in any of the skill development systems that humans have. Right. So why then would Western Buddhism now call meditation a formal practice? That's interesting. So my thought, which I'm not saying is correct, but I'll just throw it out there for posterity's sake, was that there's this idea of sitting practice, which is what I was referring to as formal practice, where you sit down, you close your eyes, and you do the things that come. But with Amapadasati, it's a practice that's with you all the time. So well, I could be washing no, dishes. No, uh-huh. no, okay. no, no, <laughs> no. Let's, let's come out of our Western mentality and our Western language and not use always not use that kind of language, but say it uh, in this way, that you do the practice when you remember to do the practice. Not always. Yes. Because that's a, when we say always, that's now a rule. That's now a rule. Yeah. That you break often and then yeah. feel bad because you've broken a rule. Yeah. You're 100% right. So I'll restate it better. <laughs> Uh, when when you remember to do Anapanasati, you don't have to stop what you're doing, walk over, find a cushion, sit down, and set a timer. It's available to you as soon as you remember. Mm-hmm. And that could be many times throughout the day, and it could be as much, it, it could be as little as just one long, deep, nice breath to reset yourself, and it could be as much as. And so when I was saying formal practice, I was thinking in terms of sitting down on a cushion with a timer with your eyes closed as opposed to the fact that it's available whenever you remember. And I'm saying that that is the the, uh, that's a a new modern Western situation Mm -hmm. that uh, started in development in the 1950s and came into flower in the 1970s, I would say that the Buddha didn't recommend that. The cushion part. Right. In fact, um, there is no word. Actually, there is. There is a poly word that the word cushion could fit into. Mm-hmm. In, in the sense that, uh, and this is kind of a funny little one. Uh, in the Anapanasati Sutta, as well as in many other suttas, the Buddha, um, first off, the setup is seclusion. And the Buddha talks about seclusion and he comes up with an analogy about the log in the bog. Have you heard that story? Yeah, we talked about that one last time. Okay, so the log in the bog now is the, um, the analogy and that then uh, the actual instructions is go to the forest, to the foot of a tree, to an empty hut, to a pile of straw, and sit down. And then the Western English versions of the translation say, in a cross-legged posture. Mm -hmm. That cross-legged posture is a wrong translation, and a closer correct translation would be sit on a cushion. A more formal translation would be sit down on uh, a in a sitting place. Now we would think of a sitting place 
in in our modern translation world um, would be a couch, a chair, some form of furniture, a sitting place. But it doesn't say cross-legged. Interesting. That's that's not in there. That was an invention of the uh, Westerner who got too interested in doing translations before he understood the Dhamma. (laughs) Yeah. And so they they teach all about cross-legged postures. Well, here's the thing about the Asians. They sit in cross-legged postures on some occasions. In fact, I've got some videos, not a video, but some photos uh, with with Eric and all, showing that the Thai people don't always even sit in a cross-legged posture. They've got even more rigorous postures. The Zen do not sit in a cross-legged posture. Have you ever heard of a uh, a Zen bench? Yeah. Okay. Guess what? Guess, guess, guess what? How many people? Um, let's do it this way. Let's ask it this question. How, where do you think most Zen benches exist? In the actual nation of Zen in Japan or in places like the United States? Which is going to have more Zen benches? Probably the United States. Right. But in fact, Zen, Zen doesn't use a bench. Yeah. Because the Zen posture that we call the Zen posture, I'm using that language, I don't know what the Japanese word for it is, is a military posture. Why is that? Well, imagine that you you, you know the posture because you've got a Zen bench, okay? Now take the Zen bench away for a moment in your mind Mm -hmm. and sit on your heels with your knees straight out. Mm -hmm. That's not a cross-legged posture. No, but it is designed, see, in a cross-legged posture, especially if you've been there for a while, it may take you, um, uh, let us say, 10 or 15 seconds to be able to stand up to where the Zen posture is designed to get off the floor in a charging posture within like two seconds or less. Interesting. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, that it's designed to get up. Yeah. Okay. Then in fact, you rise up on your knees while it does uh, actually rise up on your left on your right knee so that you could get your left foot on the ground and then push hard to get yourself up almost to jump. At the same time, while you're beginning to do that, you take your left thumb and push hard on the hilt of the uh, I forgot the Japanese word for the sword. Uh-huh. And then as it's coming out of the scabbard, you don't have to reach all the way down to get the sword like this. The scabbard is already in the air because you pushed it hard with the thumb to throw it out of the scabbard so that you've got it here and you can fully take it up. So by the time you're standing up, you can do a whack or a side whack. But that's what it's for. It's a it's a uh, offensive defensive posture military. And Westerners can't sit in that posture, but the Japanese have learned to sit that way all their lives. Okay. And so um, if we recognize that uh, a lot of cultural mentality gets wrapped up in Western Buddhism because they're seeing something that they don't understand. 
and so they make something up. That right. happens with humanity. It happens yeah. a lot. Okay. Um, so uh, the important point, though, is to get the body comfortable. And those sitting postures, a cross-legged posture, sitting on even the floor or a cushion in a meditation hall, is not a comfortable posture for Westerners. Right. For hundreds <laughs> of years, we have been taken off of the floor when we were still in diapers and put into a high chair. We go to school sitting on a desk. Okay, I have actually been to the uh, to the school several times where Kitty goes, and a lot of the time the kids are sitting on the floor. The desks are just kind of there; they're kind of relevant, not relevant. There, um, <clears throat> there was one announcer. I think it was Lawrence on MSNBC for several years, was having a big promotional to bring desk to Malawi, because the kids there had to sit on the floor. Yeah. You know, he would have been a whole lot better off. Those kids would have been a whole lot better off if he had bought computers or cell phones or something like that. But desk and, <laughs> and chairs, they don't need. <clears throat> yeah. That's not going to make a, uh, a school a better school because you've got furniture. Right, right, right. Okay, those so kids in Africa, when they go home, they go back and they sit on the floor. So those desks are a, a very little educational value for them <clears throat> but that's the western mentality and you can see oh okay well we use desk in our schools therefore we have to have these kids in desk in africa in order for them to be educated mm -hmm. right that's the same mentality uh in reverse to oh if you're going to learn to meditate you've got to sit on the floor the way the asians do right and and you would be surprised at how many discussions and arguments that have been had over the past 50 years over that issue. Yeah, With so I think uh, is stability and comfort. I think I'm sufficiently convinced uh, to stop using the term formal practice. Pardon? I said I think you've sufficiently convinced me to stop using the word formal when I refer to any sort of practice. <laughs> Right. So when we can get away from formalities and recognize that what we're actually doing is going into seclusion so that we can recognize that even though we became physically secluded from the society, from the culture, from the world, we brought it with us. The baggage or the, the, the bag is the head and the baggage is between the ears. And we brought the whole world with us. Yeah. And and so that's the draw the drying out process right. is getting the log out of the bog so that it can begin to dry out. Mm -hmm. OK, get all of that worldly stuff, all of those rules, in fact, out. And here, Western Buddhism is dragging a whole bunch of rules into the secluded practice. Right. When the whole idea is to get all the rules out of the head. Let's <laughs> see. So, if we recap, we talked about the Noble Dhamma as skill development, and Anapanasati is the sort of exercise to develop those skills. 
Um, my understanding of how you teach the practice is beyond you know, disillusion. Um, but that it's much, um, the thing that I find most different about it from other ways I hear on Apanasati taught is it's more, um, you emphasize taking the deep, deliberate breaths, like the Buddha says, mindfully, he breathes in long, mindfully, he breathes in short. Um, and sort of giving yourself or thinking wholesome thoughts. And my understanding is that you continue doing that for the whole practice, as opposed to other Anapanasati where the breath might become more and more subtle as the body relaxes and relaxes over time. The problem with the breath getting more subtle for students, not for the adept, but for the student, the problem with the uh, the breathing becoming subtle is now the body is not getting enough oxygen. They're still doing a lot of mental proliferations. They still need that um, uh, oxygen that comes from the air. So when the breathing gets very subtle, what that means is that the mind is starved from oxygen and it gets drowsy. We can't think straight. Mm-hmm. So much for subtle breathing. <laughs> so it's not no, that we that do is... not want to practice subtle breathing. No place does the Buddha ever mention that the breathing is going to get subtle. The breathing actually gets subtle because of the lack of correct practice. Interesting. But now, you also said for adapt it's okay to breathe subtle. Pardon? For did I mishear you? Did I mishear you? It sounded like you said for at a certain level it's fine for people to breathe subtly. Well, yes, right. Like when you're dead. <laughs> you said Adam. I didn't think that as dead, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, until, but, until we're dead, we need that oxygen. Sure, yeah. Uh, the, the air, the breathing is a life force. The ancients knew about that. In fact, pranayana, the word that they use in yoga, is exactly the same word as anapana. It's the same word. It's just two different languages and in reverse. But it's the same thing. It's either out and in breathing, which is the uh, yoga, or the anapana, which is the in and the out breath. But it's the same thing like that. Okay, so... uh, so you that, know that yoga uh, does a lot of specialized kind of breathing, but one of the things that we do have in the sutta is um, the practice and the recommendation to not practice breathingless meditation. Okay, because right. they did that in in uh, ancient India, just like the high schoolers do it today. You can see the high schoolers sitting around in a group holding their either holding their breath together or one guy is holding their breath and in fact there's been a few killings to where they kept holding this guy's breath even though it was way beyond the point that normally people will pass out yeah because they're not breathing right so that's another aspect of looking at subtle breathing it's not recommended it's no place in the suttas this is a western kind of mentality and the Buddha recommends to not do very subtle, shallow, or uh, breathingless meditations. Okay. 
So I think this makes my understanding of, of how you're teaching on a Panasati correct, which is that you deliberately breathe in long and continue to breathe in long. And that is one of the things that separates it from how it's commonly taught. Uh, actually, it, that is Samatha because when you're when you're fully oxygenated, the body is relaxed, and yet it's energized and it's fit for work. Yeah. All right. But subtle breathing uh, has a drowsy quality because you're not getting enough oxygen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Then, then in fact, um, whenever you have been exercising, the body wants to breathe to get the body back to a state of uh, homeostasis where there's enough oxygen. Then, in fact, we have a phrase in our language called catch the breath. Yeah. You know what that means? That means that the people, even though the body is breathing heavily because of its, uh, the body itself trying to replenish its uh, uh, homeostasis, the people don't like it because they're out of control and they want to begin to control the breath. They want to catch their breath, which means stop breathing so hard. Right. And and the right thing to tr- uh, to teach or to train kids and therefore uh, later in uh, athletes or whatever is when the body gets into that state of really roaring for, for breath. The body itself is heaving and uh, <sighs> like that, you know. Yeah. The answer to that is go along with it and help it. Mm-hmm. Put the mind into that and help the mind and the body really get bring that homeostasis back. Don't try to catch the breath. Push it. <laughs> <laughs> Keep right. going. Keep getting the body back into that state. So yeah. that whole idea of catching the breath and getting the breath subtle and all of that is is not there. That in fact, when we do catch the breath, or let us forget that language, when we do, because we didn't catch the breath, let it heave until it comes back to a homeostasis, that's when we can relax and we feel good and comfortable again. And then maybe it's time to get up and continue climbing that mountain that we were on. Yeah. Okay. So this is the way that we uh, understand it now is, is that that whole idea of samatha has to do with relaxation because everything is correct and sufficient. And it has nothing to do with subtle breathing. Yeah. But in fact, if there's anything about that word samatha, it has to do with the body being relaxed not just dull right in fact dullness is a hindrance because the dullness is a hindrance precisely and then okay this all makes sense to me so far it also makes sense to me that attainments are not worth even not worth worrying about at all what's Um, that that's not worth worrying about attainment that they're just sort of like the the point is to build these skills and what anybody labels any level okay. of that skill as is pointless. Let's, let's um, use this analogy. Yeah. Okay. Here's an analogy. <clears throat> if you are driving your car, but you're not sure where you're going, you take out the map and you look at it. While you're looking at the map, you run into a tree. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah. Right. We don't need those maps. Yeah. We don't need those maps. We need to look at where we're going. Yeah. Okay. So I'm on board with that. So now we're getting to the part where I'm starting to get, I haven't like worked through it in my mind yet. And I was hoping for your input, which is what, um, how do we think about the jhanas? Should we care about them at all? Or should we just be thinking, nope, no, no we do not. Here's the answer to that. Here's the answer to that. No, we do not care about them at all, period, ever, except <clears throat> in the situation that we know what it feels like and we know the constituent components of the jhana, especially the first jhana. OK, because that's where all the skill is developed is in the first jhana. The higher jhanas are the result of the correct practice of the first jhana. And then, in fact, as the first jhana is a base, the other jhanas are like here, there and there. When you bring the jhana together and the first way that you get it is get that um, uh, integration. Once we have that integration, we can take a look at various aspects of it. Okay, the first one is, is that once you get that really, really good, joyful feeling, once you get the, uh, um, we often miss the word that we're looking for by using the word bliss. That bliss is not the word that we're looking for, nor is it the word excitement. So the words that I've kind of settled on to use is the feeling of a champion, the feeling of a winner, the feeling of confidence, the feeling of that we've got this. And basically then the Samatha and the Samati <clears throat> are the same thing in the sense that we bring the mind's factors together. And we do that with, with, the, with the discursive thoughts. Okay, the thoughts that we have, the discursive thoughts, is what we change to the wholesome. And once we get that, we keep going in that direction until we get up to the point where we feel really, really good. And then we start paying attention to how good we feel rather than talking ourselves into it. Okay, so instead of talking he, ourselves into feeling really good, we actually, by talking ourselves into feeling really good, we do feel really good. Now that we are feeling really good, we no longer need to talk to ourselves about getting into that state. We sit there and enjoy the heck out of it. Yeah, while continuing and that would to be sure the second jhana. The second jhana is is that we no longer have to talk to ourselves about feeling so good. Okay, so. Let me ask, is it okay if I ask a couple questions now? This seems like a good okay. point. So during that lead up to and then like part through the jhanas, you want to continue mindfully breathing along, right? Yes. And then while- Unless you need it as in an emergency situation, I would go so far as to say that the second uh, step of Anapanasati, mindfully breathing short, Mm -hmm. is like in an emergency situation. Yeah. Okay. That like, let us say that the that the boss is coming down the hall and you know that he's coming to fire you. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, long, deep breath. He's going to be here in about 10 seconds or, or more. We really need to get oxygenated. We need to go back into that state like running uphill. We need mm -hmm. to actually do that short breathing. <sighs> so while you're actually doing that short breathing, you can't think about anything else other than that short breathing. Right. With the long breathing, you have time to put some thoughts in there. Got it. And then, but both of them have to do with getting the body oxygenated, and in no place does the sutras ever recommend making the breath very subtle. Right. And then that is a Western adaptation. Okay, I think I'm with you. Um, my, yeah. So the other thing I was wondering is, so now. You're mindfully breathing in long, and that's part of the process that continues regardless of the jhanas. And then you start with um, uh, basically thinking, like intentionally thinking wholesome thoughts until you start to feel wholesome feelings. And then what you're saying is now instead of mindfully breathing long and thinking wholesome thoughts, you're mindfully breathing long and focusing on those feelings. Right, and focusing on um actually some aspect of the satipatthana that would be in other words um unlike a lot of meditations that could be called concentration especially in the idea of one pointed or one focused concentration we're not doing that okay that we don't focus on one point what we focus on is something other than what the mind is in the habit of doing, which is just rambling around. Right. Okay. Uh, that one-pointed concentration is very much like a one-trick pony. Do you understand what I mean about a one-trick pony? Yes, I do. Okay. So that's one-pointed concentration, and we need our, our the training of that pony to be versatile. So um, we don't take an object and become one focused on it. Got it. The example that they did that in the old days and as part of medieval, I mean, there's just so much history about this. The Christians did it for a long time and Westerners try it too. Um, have you ever heard of crystal gazing, like a crystal ball? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Notre Dame did that same thing with a water bowl. There's also fire gazing to look in a fire and keep looking at it and keep looking at it. Right. That's a kind of a one pointed concentration. Right. What we're doing, we're not looking at an object like that. We're actually, um, let us say it's much more like a sport to where, yes, you do focus on that ball, but the ball is a moving target. And so when you're focusing yeah. on it, you're doing a whole lot more than just looking at it as a stationary object. Okay, it's much more like, are you going to be able to catch that ball? Are you going to be able to take a bat and knock it out of the park? That's the whole idea of <clears throat> the fact that uh, I think that we've been, uh, Western Buddhism is almost broken by one word. That's the word concentration, because samadhi does not mean concentration at all. It means yeah. gathering together the factors. Yeah. 
Right. Okay. And in that, that's the Satipatthana or the four foundations of mindfulness would then be the foundations in the sense of that these are the various things that we need to look at. Right. It's not just one thing. Okay. It's not a fire or a crystal or a mountaintop or something like that, that we get one point in, in concentration. And yet that's a favorite thing for Westerners to do. No, what we need to do is to investigate the whole body. We don't have to do it the way that Goenka method does with body scanning, mm-hmm. but we do begin to focus on the body in the sense of understanding our breathing, to watch the breathing, to watch the way that the body relaxes, to know whether the body is tensed, where the tension is. Is there any anxiety? Is there any guilt? Is there any sadness? Is there any anger? Is there any tensions in the neck? Any place like that, we want to learn the body and learn it well so that we can care for it. And and get it to become relaxed. Mm-hmm. Now you can relax without going into very subtle breathing. Right. Okay, there's no reason to think that subtle breathing has anything to do with what we're practicing. There's no place in there for subtle breathing. It all has to do with getting more air, not starving ourselves. Yeah, that that I'm on board with. I'm still confused about jhanas and like how they're important or how to react to them when they happen. Well, let us not use that language then, because it's it's a stilted language that is foreign to our culture. Then, in fact, that's the problem with Pali is um, when the Buddha taught, he taught in his native language to people who spoke that native language and they yeah. knew the definitions of all of the words that he was using. So when he changes and shifts the definition of the word, the people can follow. Right. When we have those words in the Pali and the people who were doing the translation didn't understand the original language and the connotations and whatnot like that, they'll get some word that kind of fits, but misses the nuances. Right. And that's why Samadhi has been mistranslated as concentration, because actually um, uh, Samadhi means to gather the factors together. Well, in order to gather the factors together, that means that each one of those factors had to have been an object of meditation. Right. It actually had to have been an object of meditation so that you develop that as a skill. Yeah. And so the first five skills is to getting the first five jhana factors together. Then the sixth skill is to be able to put them together all at one time. And then the next skill is to be able to do that over and over and over and over again. And then the next skill after that is to be able to get those five factors and then keep them for a long period of time. So five plus six plus seven. And now we've got something useful by developing those seven skills. But in order to develop those seven skills, we had to get each one of these skills together. And by doing that, we had to develop each one of them. Got it. Okay. This is really interesting. All right. So uh, 
this is where the whole idea of the skill or the training comes in. In fact, the, um, the, the language that is used in the sutta that really fits. Sometimes they do a really excellent job. In fact, the, uh, uh, the Majjhima Nikaya that is put out uh, uh, as Bhikkhu Bodhi was the editor, he actually didn't write the book. It was written in the 1950s or translated in the 50s or 60s by Nanamali. And his language is quite beautiful. I really like the Majjhima Nikaya, even though it's been edited <clears throat> into a pile of crap. The original piece was excellent. All right. And that the word that I'm looking at right now is thus one trains oneself. So there's where the skill, there's where the word practice comes in, that it's the verb. Okay. And yet when we say I'm going to meditation practice, we've turned it into a noun. Okay. That we need to keep it a verb. Practice. Practice, not I am going to practice. That's changed it into a noun. We need to keep it as a verb, an action verb. Yeah. To practice, to train, to train, to train the breathing, to train the body, to train to know the body, and to train to relax the body. But we don't do that in an order. I mean, a lot of people have the idea that Anapanasati is done in order. Almost as if by meditation practice, I'm going to go and practice the body. So the mind, the feelings and uh, mind's yeah. objects can lay in bed. When you say that Next, order, you mean, like, and after a couple steps. of years, then I'm going to put the feelings in the meditation hall and leave the body alone. OK, <laughs> so this is not the way to this practice. They have to be practiced together. Yeah. OK, but when I say together, I'm not talking about together within the person uh, the same nanosecond or even the same second. But over a period of 10 seconds, we could actually touch on five or six or maybe even 10 objects. Okay, and so we go from into we go from this training to this training to this training to this training. It's not one pointed concentration. It's actively moving, but we don't move from this object to this object and then wherever, <laughs> you know, and all over the place. No, we're trying to actually get it to where it'll go like this, 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 this is the way to practice. And mostly the mind is like. Yeah, all over the place. <laughs> and so we think the only way to get that uh, properly trained is by doing this. <laughs> and just keeping it there, just this. And we're not doing that. Okay, the first thing that we need to do then in a big way is to remove the hindrances. That's the first object that we knew. That's the first training is to remove the hindrances. That's a skill to be developed. Is this thought wholesome or what? Right. Okay. But there's various little skills that are built into getting the um, the mind free from hindrances. One is to wake up. Number two yeah. is to investigate. Number three is to make a change into the wholesome. Okay. So it takes those three skills in order to develop. So we bring these three skills together in order to get rid of the hindrances. 
Okay, so the next one then is by doing that over and over again and making the change, we make the change by brightening the mind, gladdening the mind. That this is something that a lot of people don't understand is, is that the Buddha talks about the states of mind as opposed to the objects of the mind. That the states of mind are very important. And this is what we're working on first, not the objects. So when we're talking about gladdening the mind and changing the objects, the intention is, is to change the state of mind we're in. <clears throat> to bring it up to an exalted state is one of the words that's used in the suttas. By the way, sutta number 10 is a very good uh, adjunct to the Anapanasati Sutta, and it's just chock-a-block full some amazing stuff. The problem is, is when people begin to cling to that sutta as if it were the its cadets or the big dude, and in fact, at best, it's like third in line. <laughs> okay, because the Eightfold Noble Path is the first dude. Right. You have to get that understanding of uh, sati, ditti, virya, Sati Ditti Viriya over and over and over and over and over and over and over again to wake up and take a look and make a change to wake up. Okay, take a look and make a change over and over and over again is the only way to get the hindrances out of the mind. But by doing that, we also begin to brighten the mind, gladden the mind, taking the mind out of the ordinary state that it's in into a gladdened alternate state. And as we do that, we bring it up to a level of confidence. The can-do attitude. Right. Now, that can-do attitude is not an attitude that is developed by failing at something. That can-do attitude is always developed through one success after another success after another success. And so part of that brightening and gladdening the mind is that attitude, I can do this. I've got this. Yeah. I could do this anytime I remember to do it. And okay. part of that is also like anytime you do wake up and investigate and make a change is the thing to be celebrated, not a thing to kick yourself for. Right, exactly. So a celebratory mind is mm-hmm. to be developed. Yeah. As opposed to an oh poor me, this is hard work. Yeah. So you can see how the state of mind is actually being in development because it's not the words that we use themselves. It's the state of the mind that we get in that now has the power to change the way that we feel. That that's the problem with aspirations, telling yourself good things over and over again without getting that mental change to it doesn't work. I mean, how many thousands of books have been written, self-help books, sure, yeah, full yeah. of affirmations, and the affirmations don't work, but this practice of Anapanasati does because of these various ingredients that we're putting in there mm-hmm. that affirmations alone don't have. The example is, is that the girl who is looking in the mirror before she goes to school saying, I'm the most beautiful kid in town, or I'm so beautiful, or everybody loves me, and all, she doesn't believe any of that stuff. <laughs> right. And so because she doesn't believe it, 
that means that it has no power or impact to make a change in her attitude. And guess what? The reality is going to hit her when all of the kids around her, if she goes and tells them she's the most beautiful kid in town, they're going to just trounce all over her and give her the reality. Okay. So that's the other problem with affirmations is, is that in the beginning, when we start to practice them, they're not true and they don't come true because we don't believe them. That this is possibly a good moment to introduce the issue about placebos. Have you ever heard of placebos? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So if a, if a uh, patient actually believes that this medicine is experimental, it's the hottest it's cadet thing in town, it's going to cure me of my problem, even if you give that patient a placebo, he's going to get a beneficial effect on it because he actually expects to get some benefit. <clears throat> and they've done some experiments to prove how that works by putting uh, a patient in a hospital setting, put him in a bed, put IVs on him, bring all of this electronic equipment in there into the room <coughs> and give him the feeling that he's going to be taken care of and everything like that. The percentage goes from like 28% up to about 45%. That's right. how strong the placebo yeah. effect could be because the people know for sure that they're getting benefit out of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we actually are using that now as um, a, a benefit. I know that blind studies have had, uh, double blind studies have had to have been done and all of that to prove the effectiveness of the pills. But what we're doing instead is using that, that it is our own attitude that laughter is the best medicine. It really is. Yeah. And so if a doctor has a good bedside manner, he's going to cure patients more than uh, if he is like House. Yeah. House is a very excellent diagnostician. That's the whole show. But his bedside manner is atrocious. It's terrible, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we have to actually develop that bedside manner for ourselves in the sense of that really, really positive attitude. That's what we're building. That's the the fourth item on the list that once we get that um, remembering to take a look and to make a change over and over and over again, the change actually happens. And we begin to notice that a change actually is happening. And that's worth congratulating ourselves for. And that's when we begin to change that part of the mind to actually brighten the mind. The mind is now really brightened because we're getting success in this. Okay. And what is the success? I'm actually able to change the way that I feel. I can begin to feel safe, secure, comfortable and been satisfied. And yeah. we practice this safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied, which, by the way, in the Pali Dictionary, that's the definition of sukha. Right. All of those elements are in there, safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. Now, sukha is actually quite opposite to dukkha, where we're dissatisfied, uncomfortable, and in danger. <laughs> And so we have to bring the mind into that mental state that we actually feel safe, secure, 
comfortable and satisfied. And we do that over and over and over again as a skill development. And that's when we're able to, then to develop that, that peak point of, dang it, I've got this. Mm-hmm. Wow, what a relief it is. I know that I can, I don't have to have any more troubles. All I have to do is remember that I don't have any troubles. Right. And we can say this in little little language like that, but it's a realization. It's like <laughs> that kind of expression. It's like, wow. And I've got a story about that, that, that expression. And that is, is that the mother was a new agey diet freak vacant whole nine yards she has a baby and she puts that baby through the same routine and he gets to be about the age of four and he goes over and meets a friend to have a play date or whatever like that and the mom of his friend gives him chocolate and he tastes that chocolate and he looks at that chocolate and he looks up at his mom and says mom (laughs) you've been (laughs) <laughs> You've been holding out on me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and so that's that's that realization. Wow, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's the that so that's where the mind comes in to that play. That's the pity. That's the um uh how they ever got it into a state of rapture, I don't know, especially since the Christians have their own definition of what the word rapture means. And even the old word itself makes no sense. Uh, in the, Rapture actually means to be wrapped up in something. Mm-hmm. And so the rapture means that God's going to come wrap you up. I don't, I don't think that that's actually what we're looking for. This is much more the freedom not to getting wrapped up in something that this is also what they mean by absorption we're not being absorbed that people do get absorbed in a book i have seen many times when especially the better coders will get wrapped up in their code they get completely immersed into it they get completely uh uh um into it and the uh, example that he used actually is from a student where he's sitting there in his bedroom doing code, just after it, doing code. His dad comes in to say goodnight. And the kid doesn't even look up at his dad because he's too associated with the code. He's yeah. uh, absorbed with it, right? And yet you hear all of these words in uh uh, English Buddhism or Western Buddhism about absorption, immersion, and all of this concentration, yeah. all of this stuff that normal human beings do, we're trained to do that, and so we think that it's a useful thing to do in uh, the practice of Anapanasati. For in fact, no, we are not becoming absorbed. We are free. Yeah, <laughs> we are not underwater. We're not immersed. We're sailing. Yeah, uh, absorption sounds like part of the problem. Like you're absorbed in whatever random thing your mind wants to wander off to. Right? You need to wake up from it. And we need to wake up from those things, right? So this coder in that bedroom should have paid attention to his dad. Right. 
And so I actually, we, we started with that, with the idea of your dad is now your Zen master with the Zen stick. When that Zen stick comes by, you got to pay attention to it. Or you're going to get whacked. If you're absorbed, if you're lost in either inner space or outer space, and that Zen master comes up, you need to know he's there. Yeah. This was actually part of the training. I got physically trained with this from Achan Po. He would do several things. The one that's the most amusing is, is that uh, due to the fact that we had ceremonies and duties and all kinds of things to be out, most of the time we were in the Kuti, but there were times when we'd be out and about. And he would use those opportunities to catch me off guard. And he would <laughs> sneak up behind me and have just one or two words that he would use. He had two of them that were favorites. One was ta-ta-ta, ta-ta-ta, which means wake up, dummy, be here now. I just <laughs> walked up and whispered in your ear and you didn't even know I was here. Mm-hmm. And the other one that he would use was, the English words was not sure. How yeah. many times have I heard that from Achan Po? Not sure. And what he was referencing to is, is that we often use our views like viewpoints or um, worldviews, perspectives, all of that means that we see something, we mix it with some old stuff, figuring out what it is, and now we've built a concept. And Achan Po kept reminding me, don't be sure of anything. Keep looking. Keep looking. Here I am talking to you, and you didn't even know that I had approached you. Mm-hmm. The other thing, which even more subtle education, was that he would come and stand in the yard of the Kuti. He didn't say anything. He didn't call. He didn't do anything to, uh, to give a sound. And I had to figure out that he was there, or to at least come out on the porch, something needed to be looked at. This is a very subtle training in a mystical art, except that it's not magic, it's real. He was there for me, and I wasn't there <clears throat> for him. Why? Because I was absorbed. I was meditating. I was deep. I was immersed. And this is <laughs> the practice. <laughs> the practice is to be here now. Your, your teacher has just arrived. And you don't even know it. It's really interesting. It's so funny that like it's so different from everything that you like take in for Western Buddhism, right? Because like every everything is preaching and observing, wanting to get right. Because we're looking for attainments, and we're thinking that if we get in these weird states, that that's of value. So this is why the teaching of the Buddha is so subtle, it's so profound, because he did it the wrong way for years. He practiced all the jhanas, and he recognizing the jhanas alone are not going to do anything for you. Yeah, You have to have something else in there. All right? And what we, that something else that's actually needed is best developed when we are developing the jhanas and in fact we can learn to do the jhanas but we have to do a whole lot of investigation in order to do that 
Now, the result of correct investigation, we in Buddhism use the word insight and are referring to the word vipassana <laughs> in the Pali. But guess what? The word vipassana is a later word. It's later after the time of the Buddha. Yeah, and he never the, said, like, go do concentration and then go do insight. Like, there was never a distinction made. Until no. later by other people. It was later, and then there is a whole group of suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya that have to do with stop that. Okay, that the the suttas have to say is is that if you have one without the other, then go get the one that you don't have. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have either one of them, develop them together, which was the right way to do it in the first place. Yeah. Okay. So uh, a lot of people can have a whole lot of insight and never touch jhana at all. And even though they get the insights to it, they don't do much of anything about it. This happens in psychotherapy. Really, people can be in psychotherapy for years and have tens of thousands of insights and they're still unhappy and miserable. Right. So insight alone is not going to cut it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. We can get deep insights into into things, uh, but unless we practice and develop the skills that we need, then the insights themselves don't have much of any value. The next thing to do is to recognize that any time that you're actually seeing what the mind is doing, isn't that an insight right then and there? And that's all we need to do. That's removing the hindrances to have the insight enough to recognize that this is a hindrance. Let's get out of it. Because without that insight, we're not going to be able to do any vajanas, any vipassana, any samatha at all. You've got to have the insight that comes through direct investigation right from the get go. Mm -hmm. But then if we only do it in the sense of getting the jhana factors, which is the way that he was taught without having the insight about what's going on in the mind, it's not going to be of much value. So really the skills that we develop while uh, practicing is the skills that we need. And we can't develop those skills without the insight. But once we have the skills, the insight, uh, let us say that old insight that we had is no longer relevant. It's like remembering a turd from 1930. (laughs) (laughs) What's the point? Yeah. (laughs) That we got over it. Is uh... Mm that... If you develop the skills, do the jhanas come naturally, or is it that you develop the skills and then you have to also develop the jhanas? Well, um, basically, we have to at least keep track of the fact that there are five things that we need to develop. Actually, there's six. Um, in the description of the first jhana, in many, many different suttas, they list five factors as uh, the first jhana, the five factors of the first jhana. However, in some other suttas, there are listed as six factors. And the Anapanasati indicates, in fact, the six factors. What is the six factors? Well, let's go through them. The first one, and obvious and the most important one, is to get out of unwholesome thinking into correct thinking, which a lot of meditation systems don't even bother to do. 
They're going after the absorptions out, you know, they're going after uh, getting the mind dull, thinking that the mind, a dull mind is a valuable mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. A mind is a terrible thing to get dull. Sure. Yeah, 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 I get what you're saying. That's like the idea that most noting practices don't say throw away the garbage. They just say, look at the garbage. Become yeah, absorbed just look in at the garbage. It. Become yeah. absorbed in the garbage, exactly. <laughs> Until your whole life becomes a city yeah. dump because you're so good at detecting the garbage. You're noting yeah. and noting and noting. And so they only have two of the skills. The waking up and taking a look and waking up and taking a look. And we're saying, no, that the Buddha teaches to wake up, take a look and make a change. The three of them are together in the sutras. And when we get good at that, then we add that fourth element to it, the Samas and Kappa, so that that fourth element then really helps the effort. Because what if you've got the right Kappa? attitude, it's easy to do. If you've got the wrong attitude, if this is hard, then it's hard to do. All we have to do is change the attitude. And the way that we change the attitude is by being successful at the first three. That we can gladden the mind. We can make it bright. We can come out of our sadness and sorrow and come into a state of safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a, actually a kind of a peaceful place to be. Not necessarily a subtle breathing place to be, But you can do that safe, secure, satisfied, and comfortable. And in fact, the guy who was about to go into a title bat, a match, a 15-round boxing match, he can walk in there safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. But he is not peaceful. (laughs) He is not. (laughs) No, he's jumping around. He's just ready to go do it, you see. Okay, so we need that kind of state. Mm-hmm. Of can do because now we're also uh, as we're doing this we have to take various objects we're taking the object of sati taking the object of investigation taking the object of uh, right effort taking the object then of sukha taking the object means do I feel safe and secure we also work with the body can I get the body to feel comfortable Safe, secure, and comfortable, safe, secure, and comfortable are actual factors of the physical reality that you're in. Right. That the room that you're in is a safe, secure place. Many people do not feel safe in a meditation hall. They go to the meditation hall and they put pressure on themselves and they don't feel safe and secure in that meditation hall. And the way that they're being taught to sit, they're certainly not comfortable. No. <laughs> so where is the satisfaction going to come from? Okay, so we actually need to get ourselves in the physical environment, the body in a place that is the body itself is safe, secure, and comfortable, because otherwise we're not going to feel safe, secure, and comfortable. Mm-hmm. So we have to pay attention to the body. We have to get it safe and secure and comfortable. And we do that by breathing in and breathing out and getting the body all um, juiced up. <clears throat> That in fact, the pity also has a, a secondary language. That word rapture is so wrong. The pity that we're talking about has the quality of uh, confidence. The, 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 uh, the football player, when he makes a touchdown, 
especially the star of the the world, you know, the Heisman Trophy winner, the big, big game, thousand, tens, hundred, fifty thousand people are at this game, and he makes a touchdown. Mm-hmm. What does he do when he makes that touchdown? Spikes the ball, throws his arms up in the air. Yes, exactly. Why? Because he's celebrating. Yeah. And the whole team may come and jump on, and everybody's celebrating. The people in the stands, they stand and they cheer and they throw their arms in the air and they celebrate. Mm-hmm. That's, in fact, the reason why people go to these football games. If the guy made a touchdown and he says, ho-hum, I've done this 10,000 times before. And the team says, ho-hum, yeah, so we're winners. It doesn't matter. I mean, this game doesn't mean anything anyway. I'll get my $100 million salary. It doesn't matter whether we score or not. Yeah. Then the people are not going to be coming to games like that because they say, ho-hum, why should I go pay $100 for a football ticket when I can sit at home being ho-hum? Sure. No, we go for that thrill of the win. We go for the excitement. (laughs) Okay? And so... Uh, that's never mentioned within the context of, poly, of the practice of Anapanasati. That we think of, oh, we've got to get down into that calm, deep, dull, uh, subtle breathing kind of state. Yeah. <clears throat> and this is, that may be eventually the end of it. When you don't care about anything anymore. But right now, when we're still caring about stuff, let's start caring about things that are worth caring about. Like being alive. Sure. Okay. Because if you're dead, what's important? What do you care about after you're dead? Nothing. I don't know. Who knows? No, so really, in <laughs> our in our lifetimes now, so the first thing that we need to understand is, is that if you're uh, alive then that's the only thing that's really, really important. And you're going to be dead in about three minutes unless you take this next breath, which then makes the breathing kind of important. So this is a change of mentality because we've given no thought to the breathing. We give no thought to being alive. We give all of our thoughts to whatever we were into. Yeah. Okay. Whatever garbage we let ourselves get absorbed in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a, t- I'll give a little story. They use monkeys here in South Thailand, not monkeys, but a kind of a baboon mm-hmm. as, uh, as slaves. And they, they're the coconut pickers. There are literally what a hundred million coconut trees in South Thailand. And very rarely are they ever climbed by a human like they are in Indonesia and Bali and all of that kind of place in India. No, they use the monkeys. There's actually on this, not this island, but on Koh Samui and also on the mainland are Mahawitialai Ling, universities for monkeys. (laughs) They train these monkeys, okay? So the question is, how did they catch the monkeys in the first place? Because these baboons were smart. Mm -hmm. Okay, they do it with greed. So they take a coconut and they cut two holes in each uh, a hole in each end of it, one smaller than the other, and they uh, they put a rope through that, tying a knot on the inside of the uh, the uh, the coconut, so that the coconut is attached, and then the other rope is aside end of the rope is tied around the tree. The monkeys will go in that little hole and get their hand in this way, 
and then they can get it back out that way. But if they grab some coconut meat and hold it in their hand, they can't slip it back out that hole. And when the, the man comes, the monkey knows what's happened and he could get free, but he gets really all excited. And now he's jumping up and down and all over the place, but he's still got his hand caught in that coconut and he won't open his hand and pull it back out the way that he did. Okay, how many times have humans done exactly that same thing? We call it a job. Mm -hmm. We call it work. And there we go, sticking our hand into that society, grab a little money or whatever like that, and then we can't get loose. We're stuck. (laughs) (laughs) And the monkey doesn't recognize that his freedom is a whole lot more important than that handful of coconut. Right. Okay. Do you understand that your freedom and your being alive in this breath's breath is the only thing that's important? And that handful of coconut that you've been clinging to is not that important after all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that story. It's a good one. Okay, so that means that the, the monkey cares too much about that coconut and therefore yeah. he is he's stuck in it. He he uh, this is this is Upadana. that we're actually become prisoners of the things that we're clinging to and holding on to. Yeah. So I think I've heard you have another story about that, which is like, well, you get things that you wanted and then you have to protect them and then you have to uh, keep them. And now you've become, you know, uh, you've become, now you have to do all this extra stuff you don't want to do in order to keep the stuff that you have. And like you, you know, continue to perpetuate that cycle. Exactly, yes. Uh, So, the whole idea then is to come back to how marvelous this present moment is, how marvelous it is. I can get my hand out of that coconut right now. (laughs) I can get my mind free from all of those pieces of coconut that I've been clinging to and be okay with it all. So yeah. this is the this is the real practice, and that's a, quite a celebration. Can you imagine? Because it does actually happen that sometimes the monkeys can, when that man comes and he say, checks it out, he actually does get his hand out. He mm-hmm. does let go of the coconut, and he does get it. What does the monkey do when he gets free from that coconut? Oh, he's probably already chattering, but now his chattering begins to change and he climbs up in the tree and now he's looking down at the man and said, ha, 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 <laughs> Okay, so that's the kind of attitude that we want to have to the society. Ha, 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 I am free of all of these problems now. We begin to celebrate that we got loose. I like that. That's very fun. Okay, so this is the way then we start to practice. We want to have that high point, that pity, that feeling of, I got out of that. I've been practicing and doing all of this stuff, and finally I figured out that I got to let go. Mm -hmm. By letting go, I can get my hand out, and now I'm free again. And that's what we need to practice over and over and over again. And that's got really very little to do with the monkey sitting down on the ground with his hand to sit in that coconut. And he sits cross-legged and, and gets really peaceful. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and so that so uh we should have dancing monkeys as our object for meditation rather than these buddha rupas that they have with the the statue you know uh yeah this this uh showed the statue having some motion of celebration yeah the statue okay. of the arms of the animal Bahamas. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no more coconuts for me, you know. Yeah. I got out of that. <laughs> um, so this is then the practice, is that there's a lot of little skills that we have to develop. And the, and the number one skill is to remember that we got our hands stuck at a coconut. To remember to take a look and recognize that we're trapped here yeah. and all I have to do is let go of that thought and get free. And then with that, we can then develop this, the feeling of safety, security, because we are free. We can feel safe. If we're thinking about that email I got to write to the boss, that's a terrifying thing to think about. Mm-hmm. So if we don't think about that email we got to write to the boss now, no problem. Yeah. All we had to do is stop thinking about it. Let go of the coconut. Mm-hmm. And so look at all the various coconuts we stick our hands in and then get trapped because <laughs> we want something out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of coconuts out there. There are a lot of coconuts <laughs> in our society. There sure are. <laughs> yeah. They just wave them in front of you. Uh, mm-hmm. That's funny. Yeah, I think um, I've been enjoying the practice a lot so far. I've really enjoyed this chat. Um, I yeah, I really appreciate the time. And is there more you want to chat chat about? Or well, let's tie this back together. And yeah. that back the back together then is is that this actually then Anapanasati specifically is designed around getting the mind into first jhana. Mm-hmm. All of the factors are there. All six of them. Okay, the mind is free from hindrance is the first thing that we're working on. And then the next one is, is that uh, we keep uh, applying and applying and applying and applying the mind into the wholesome and getting the body comfortable and relaxed. So we work the mind and the body together. Then we use the two of them to work on the feelings. If your body is unsafe and insecure and uncomfortable, you cannot feel safe, secure and comfortable. You got to get the body that way. Right. You got to also get the mind into being safe, secure, and comfortable, and brightened and gladdened, and then we can get the feelings. Once we have the feelings of uh, safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfaction, and we do that over and over again, we begin to develop the feeling of success. That's that's the easy word, but when I use the word success, it doesn't have much meaning to people. But we're talking about not success, we're talking about success. <laughs> success, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it, success. That's the kind of success that we need to, to, uh, to develop. Mm-hmm. And that's the pity. Success, that's not pity. Success, yes, I got it. Oh, wow, I can do this. I spike that ball, you know, that kind of thing. That's the feeling of pity. And that we want to then start analyzing that. 
that becomes the second John is when we're actually, we don't have to make a lot of noise or howl with laughter or anything like that, but it's still that feeling of, I've got this. Mm -hmm. That's the second jhana, that experiences of that top peak point. And see, we don't have to talk ourselves into it anymore because we've got it now. Right. You've developed the skill thoroughly. We've developed that skill, but the development has to be doing the apply and sustain and apply and sustain and apply and sustain. So once we get the first jhana, by applying and sustaining, that becomes our object to watch how we do not let the mind wander away. We can keep it back in place. Mm-hmm. We can keep it there. And so this then, after a while, the real issue that I'm bringing up is, is that the first jhana is all there is to do. When we are have the first jhana fully, fully uh, developed, the second, third, and fourth jhana are natural outcomes of that. Mm-hmm. And yet the way that the human mind, especially the Westerner wants, is, is as soon as they get first John, okay, second John, here it comes. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, no, we need to develop the skill of having one wholesome thought after another, after another, until that becomes a habit. Not right. one wholesome thought, now I feel good, now it's time to stop thinking. You can't do that. The thoughts mm-hmm. are going to come back and they're going to come back unwholesome. Right. And so uh, let us say that most of the work to be done is the first jhana, about 90%. Is getting to the first jhana and staying in it? Getting into the first jhana and staying in the first jhana is about 90% of the work, probably 99% of the work. Yeah. An example that I would use is a violin. All we need to do is to get one note out of that violin, just one note. Order to get one note out of a violin, we have to have the body, we have to have the case, we have to have the bridge, we have to have the string, we have to have the curl, we have to have the uh, the knots, all of that. You got to have the whole violin, and then that one string is the first jhana. The second jhana and the third jhana and the fourth jhana is just adding string number three and four to. You know, just add a couple. You got to have that violin first. Sure. Yeah. You have to have the whole body of your practice. That's the first genre. The first genre is the first string of a violin. You got to develop the violin. Mm -hmm. You got to develop these things. So then the rest of it, uh, actually, the violin um, doesn't work so well uh, until you think about maybe it's pressing wood. With glue, you see them do it on the internet, and they've done it for years uh, uh, to make some pretty bowls because you're gluing and layering the wood together like that. So getting the wood all layered together, glued together, and pressed together, and hold it together completely until the glue dries would be like the first genre. After we do that, the turning of that wood is easy enough. Yeah. You just put it on the bowl maker and have it run around on round and round and round. And all you have to do is just take your little um, knife and run down it and you make a beautiful bowl. If you don't have the wood, if you don't have all that stuff together, you can't do it. So most of the work is getting the wood ready to uh, uh, to carve. Right. So that's the way that we also can think about the first John. That's most of the work. 
Another way of looking at it is if you got to do some excavation, almost all of the work is the manufacturing of the backhoe, putting the backhoe on a truck, which you've also got to manufacture, and then delivering it to the site. Once you get all of your equipment to the site, digging that hole is easy enough. It takes a day or two, but it took years to get the equipment together. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is another way of looking at First John. We really have to develop it. We have to develop those seven factors over and over and over again with some sub uh, skills in the process. One little skill after another. Remember, that's the first skill to look and to get really good at looking. That's a really big skill. And then taking the effort because that's also a skill. In the beginning, it takes a lot of effort. Later, it's yeah. just that easy. All I have to do is just remember, oh, I don't have to worry about that computer. Let it go. I don't care. Yeah, because you've committed so much of it to have it. Mm -hmm. You begin to build new habits. Okay, so I'll, I'll end it this way. We can stop our conversation like this. Our thoughts and our feelings are wrapped together. Our thoughts and feelings create our verbiage, our language, our, our speech. Our speech then determines our actions. We don't very much do something unless we're talking about it and thinking about it and, and doing it. But our actions then is what develops our habits. And our habits determine our destiny. Mm -hmm. So don't try to change your destiny. Don't try to change your habits. Don't try to change your actions. Don't even try to change your words. Change your thoughts. This thought, that's the one that needs to be changed. This one. This thought and this feeling, that's what we need to work on. And yeah. when we get this thought and this feeling in top-notch shape, then our language is going to be wholesome. Everything stems from there. And everything goes from there. So that's what the first John is all about, is getting our thoughts and our feelings in order. After that, the rest of it's fairly good, easy enough. And that's, it will change your destiny. Yeah. <laughs> you, you imparted a lot of wisdom in a very short period of time tonight. <laughs> or I guess this morning for you. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sam, I'm really glad that you're so interested and in, in curious about the Dhamma. May you have great success. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. Sorry if I got a little tired at the end. I have a newborn at home and it's it's past my bedtime, but I really wanted to take the opportunity to chat again and I'm looking forward to doing it again soon. All right. Well, I imagine that you're bright and shiny now and not so tired and ready to go to bed. <laughs> you're up. I, think, I think I've been at both. I've got one little slice of me that, that's up and smiling and happy and then something else in the back there that's like, go to bed. The baby's going to wake up. I know. That's a rule. <laughs> You got a rule. You got to follow that rule. Yeah. You got to go to bed at the bedtime. You can't go to bed when you're tired. You got to go to bed when you're when the clock tells you to go to bed. I know that yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't go to bed, you can't do school tomorrow. You got to go to school tomorrow. Go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> because that's when you learn that rule is when you were a child. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm I'm still I've, my body is very tired. <laughs> Enjoy that too. Yeah. That's an excellent time to practice is when the yes. when the body is tired. 
Yeah, I've been Let looking, at, uh, I've been looking at situations like that as instead of looking at things as being uh, unfortunate, looking at them as being good opportunities to practice. Mm -hmm. doing All right, that. Sam. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> we'll see you later. Yes, hopefully I'll talk to you again real soon. Yes, we'll see you soon.